All right, everybody, we're here with Maria. Uh, Maria was the country manager slash GM of Branch Nigeria. Uh, before that, she was the GM of Uber Nigeria. So she has a lot of experience in tech in Nigeria, obviously. So we thought we'd bring her on the show just to talk about what she's learning and what she's up to now. Um, Maria, where are you? I'm currently at Oxford and the weather is good today. Um, so I'm here with my husband as well and we had to quarantine for two weeks. Although we did take a test before we left, but that doesn't count. Stay indoors for two weeks, which is pretty strict actually. Like you can't go out of your house. Um, wow. So we had to order food, but our apartment overlooks this, you know, like garden allotments, which is actually nice because we saw people nice. coming. Wow. Well, You're just watching people. <laughs> <laughs> for <Well>. two weeks. <laughs> at some point it's like when can we go out have yes. you tried punting i haven't i almost did but then the weather it's was the horrible thing. that day no but i will i have to yeah. i feel like it's an oxford thing you know everyone talks about punting you have to do yeah. it. what is that I, I actually don't even know what that is except for football Maria, you want to you want to explain it what i understand it is pretty much like a boat and then all of you like riding the boat all together that's what that's, that's what right and you have a stick it's not an oar and because there are a bunch of canals around Oxford, you're pushing along the bottom with a stick uh, and you can, you know, have a few people in the bone kind of go along the canals and it's, it's lovely. Yeah. So you got to check, you got to do that. I mean, if, you know, unless crew is kind of more your thing. No, I have to do it. I feel like I have to do it. So um, I was hoping you could background. I think you just have a, a fascinating story. Former management consultant did that at Deloitte for three years. Um, strategy consulting was fascinating, was great. Worked with a lot of banks, did some operations improvement projects, um, but really wanted to get my hands dirty. Figured very early on that I was not a specialist specialist, but a generally specialist and embraced it early on. So. Did consulting, loved it, but wanted to really go into entrepreneurship, like really get my hands dirty. And that was when I joined Uber as a country manager. Um, sorry, no. So how do you, how do you just like, I want to get my hands dirty. All of a sudden I'm country, man <laughs> all of a sudden I'm country manager of a multi-billion dollar company. No. How do you, you make that leap? Um, Deloitte, I was a senior consultant and I had already started like chatting to like the project managers, like the partners. I really wanted to do operations projects and I had done some of that, but I was like, Consulting will not, like operations and consulting, no matter how much you get your hands dirty, there's still that separation. And yeah. very, I, I think just a few months after I started, you know, actively thinking about getting my hands dirty, Uber actually reached out. A recruiter reached out on LinkedIn. Just hey, randomly. Like, oh, that's fantastic. It was so like serendipitous. And sometimes I'm like, to what extent, you know, does that kind of change your entire life story? But um Someone from, you know, Uber reached out, a recruiter said, we have this role open in Lagos. It's the operations manager role. So I didn't go in as a country manager, as the operations manager. And then I was like, yes, you know, I'm excited about this. And, and you know, did the interview literally was like, I think, three weeks or four weeks. And I had a job and I had to resume at Uber a few months after. So I joined Uber and it was literally like opposite of consulting because in consulting, it's like, it's not done, it's perfect. And at a startup, it's like, you know, done is better than perfect, like just get it going. Just, and that was such a steep learning curve. Um, but ironically, that was what helped me thrive in consulting because I was very entrepreneurial. But this was at another level. And, I, and I'm so grateful for that experience because what that did was just kind of almost like shift my brain towards this very aggressive bias towards action that has served yeah. me so far. 
Um, so I was at Uber for about six months, did mostly analytics, you know, engaging with drivers, designing driver incentives as the operations manager. And then the GM left at the time. Mm. Mm. So um, it was like, who was going to assume the, the, there was a new role called the country manager role because that person was the GM for West Africa. So there was a new role called the, the country manager. And I was like, okay, Maria, would you like to take this role? I was like, hells yeah, that, that's fun. But it was also <laughs> a difficult time because hells, yeah. <laughs> there was like price cuts, like Uber was facing so much in Nigeria. So it was like baptism by fire. Like mm. um, many things were happening then. And, and, I, and I stayed there um, for a year in total. My role kind of pivoted to more like designing partnerships, like engaging with regulators, those type of stuff um, alongside the policy person. Um, but then just around a year yeah, yeah i know um just sticking with uber for a sec yeah so I, I remember at that time there was sort of a battle with taxify yes. and uber had some ups and downs mm -hmm. with you know pricing getting pricing right and getting the, the um, driver experience right where is it now um have they are they surging again or is it have they um sort of given up on the country or how's it going I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not quite sure, um, but a few things have happened since then. I mean, there was the era where it was just Uber in the country and then Taxify came in and there was quite a lot of competition. Then there was COVID and what that did to that mm. you know, business model. Um, There's so O-Ride too, right? O-Ride yeah. got big for a but, second there. But that's like the bikes, right? Um, like okay. uh, Okada's, yes. So he, so it's, I think at this point right now, it's pretty much just me. Um, probably just running the business on autopilot because, you know, you can't interact with drivers anymore because mm. of COVID. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's just, I think right now it's mm. almost in like bare, bare bones stage, just kind of like keeping that business going. But that's, that's what I think. Yeah. So we hired you. I forget how I first met you. Was it a recruiter or how did we... I think it was, I think Andrew actually reached out to someone who worked with me at Uber before. Right. In, in Kenya and then she made the referral and she chatted me she's like hey someone's you know are you interested yeah. at the time I didn't even know what branch was but I knew Kiva and I knew you know that story okay like, oh, okay I'd love to know what branch was about and, that, and I think we met uh, Matt in 2017 sometime then um mm -hmm. somewhere in Lagos um and yeah at, at knock exactly exactly at knock and I remember mm -hmm you know, coming to that meeting and then leaving and feeling so like energized because I really connected to what you were trying to do. Um, I really connected to the branch story. I felt like someone had to disrupt financial services the way Uber had disrupted transport. And from my yeah. consulting days with banking, I really wanted someone to do that. Um, so, so yeah, that was how that happened um, after my time at Uber. So you got thrown in the fire. We really were just starting to work in Nigeria wasn't going so well. Um, how do you recall your three, was it three years yes, at Branch? three years. Um, like from a business standpoint, what was the trajectory? Oof. Is it all smooth sailing? Uh, no, definitely not. Like <laughs> there, were, there were, I think it's just so fascinating thinking about it in retrospect because it was almost like the business was a different phases at different times and it required like different hats different ways to think mm -hmm. about things and I think that's where I kind of thrive which which is why it came so naturally to me I was excited even though it was you know exhausting and stressful it was the good kind that kind of energized you um 
So I remember the early days, it was pretty much us in this tiny little box somewhere in, in Lecky. That's um, the, the co-working yeah. in your hub. And it was just a team of three people. Um, and I remember, you know, then it was kind of like just getting into the, the weekly, you know, routines of, you know, you know, setting goals. I was new at the time. I'd inherited that small team. Was also getting, you know, building their trust, you know, in me as a leader, making sure we're aligned with the vision, um, which was aligned with the, with the wider, you know, branch vision. Um, and I thought that was very important to invest time in that, you know, in that stage because, and I'm glad that now I did, um, in retrospect, because organically, as we grew, that, that spirit just kind of multiplied. And mm -hmm. it's very hard to kind of try to implement that as a, at a larger stage. But um, really, you know, having that culture inbred at the earlier stage, you know, served us well in the long term. And I think it just made things more easy as we went. So there was that stage of being super small, you know, you know, just trying to grow the business, you know, really aggressive growth, making sure the operations can kind of, you know, withstand that growth. I have always believed that to build a scalable business, as you mm. grow this way, your operations like metrics need to go this way, like your service time is not uh. down. And it's kind of like counterintuitive because cool. most people experiences of like um, scaling businesses is that it breaks as it goes. But I really do think that if you think about it and structure it early enough in a way that it can withstand scale, you can actually build magic. And, and that's one constant feedback we got from like branch. It's like, oh, they grew, but then their service times are still very, you know, responsive, you know, things didn't break as much. And, and I think that's the true beauty of, of, of really being able to build a business that scale. So there was that stage of like really aggressive growth. Then there was the bits where all I was doing was hiring. And like, uh. it was like interviews <laughs> <laughs> and it's like- All day. <laughs> all day. And you can't, and you really need to kind of get people who, who get it, like who have that internal drive to want to do more, who connect to the vision, who are just natural self-starters because it compounds. I really do think so. And I think that over time that was evident within the team. Um, hey Maria, so how would you get at that? Like, I mean, if you're, you know, going through this kind of every hour is interviewing different people you know, you're hiring for all sorts of open positions, like it's scaling, you're just trying to get, you know, really great folks. Like, how, well, like, how do you do that well? Because people find themselves in that situation and the outcomes can really, you know, make or break the company from that phase of, you know, adding like doubling, tripling the team in a very short amount of time. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. I think in retrospect, a few things, um, I really do think it's just important to have a very solid like hiring team, like the people who got it. Yeah. So it's kind of like you account for each other's like blind spots because there might be things you would miss that someone else then kind of picks up on. And then another thing that I tried to do um, was also to just make the hiring process enjoyable for I and the person who I'm like, like talking to, because once um, they kind of loosen up, you get to know who they are. And you get better able to assess if they're a fit for the company, but from like a professional standpoint and even from like a, you know, life goals standpoint, like do they connect to what we're trying to build? So there were times where it, where it was just like monotonous, but I think maybe also personality wise, I love to meet people like each new, you know, experience with meeting someone, I see it as the universe presenting you with just another view of the world and, you know, mm -hmm. new about people. So maybe that energy just kind of also helped. Um, and then I also just used to tell myself it was for a period um, you needed to build this really solid, you know, middle and, and it wouldn't be as intense. So it wasn't forever. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, I, I love that. Uh, 
everyone's kind of a point in the awareness since so you can almost enjoy exactly. um you know the experience of really getting to know folks and it sounds like you kind of broadened it to um you know just talk about life and and, and other things in a way that was actually genuinely like enjoyable um and in the process you're going to get us feel for how someone's going to do at branch um well and how many folks did you hire in that time like what like give us a sense of magnitude I think at the time I left, the team was around 39 or 40, and I had hired on, and, and I, the team started when it was like three. So minus that, so 36 people. Boom. Probably more than that. They, yeah. they didn't all stick around forever. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, plus or minus a few. Um, but yeah. Neat. Um, and in terms of like the results, um, it wasn't always smooth sailing. We had some periods of fraud. We had some periods oh, yeah. of difficult fundraising we had um default rate goes up and down what do you think were the are the challenges of lending in nigeria this way through a smartphone oh that's a good question and now that you mentioned that i just like had memories of all the difficult sorry (laughs) no but it was it's so interesting how we kind of smoothing things in retrospect because like i didn't have that zoomed in my mind but like i remember one time we had this you know case of fraud and it wasn't how's that work yeah so pretty much i mean with the business model we kind of use you know smartphone data to credit score and there's certain pointers we kind of look out for for kyc validation right and um on the other end would i say on the bvn front which is supposed to be the bank verification number just for context it's pretty much think of a social security number but tied to your bank account it's like a unique oh thank you making it relevant for for americans nice that's very very self-aware of you So it's pretty much this amazing tool that I think really, um, I think it was very smart by the government to just pretty much tie every single Nigerian with a number that is linked to their bank account. So it just kind of does two things, validates that someone exists and then also in the process validate that they have a bank account. So um, there were banks at the time who were trying to kind of like ramp up maybe their growth and they had opened bank accounts for people we using very low security like checks so people could just use their bvn these are like were they the 99 accounts or weren't they all labeled with the same number? yes there were some yeah they were labeled with the same number that was one way we were able to identify them so with this like here are the fraud accounts these are (laughs) these are accounts made for fraud we're labeling them 99 yeah and then we just went through we just went through our database and like yep 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 everyone (laughs) every single person with this type of bank account is a is a criminal and 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 the yeah. funny thing is, um, doing that, one thing that kind of came through quickly was that, you know, you, you kind of saw quite a lot of those registrations of those numbers that in a particular period of time, you could tell that, you know, something was wrong. And I, and I think one thing about that incident that I found so fascinating was how quickly the team identified and responded to it. Um, shout yeah. out to Chike, who pretty much... You Chike. Know, he, yeah, Chike he pretty, is a hero. He we got to get him on the podcast. We got to get him on the podcast. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna get his side of the story. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get him next. Yeah. Because he came to me, he's like, uh, Maria, this, this, like, I think, no, I think we, we noticed like a spike and then we checked into it and then we just started seeing the patterns. Um, and maybe back to the story, these numbers were just numbers, um, bank accounts that banks had allowed people with BVNs create without being physically there. They had done it on their phone and they didn't ask for any other level of like identification. So what happened was that some set of like bad actors just pretty much stole people's BVNs and then use that to create an account. And then- Is there like a, 
is there a place you can go in Ikeja to get BVNs or where where do people get these BVNs? I have no idea, Matt. I'm not aware of that market, but it probably exists. I mean, if this was possible, um, it, it probably exists. Probably there's some data leakage somewhere. On the dark web, there's a black market. It, it, is, it is possible. So what happened then was we just had like an onslaught of these numbers and these accounts and, and they applied for loans and, you know, we disbursed loans into their accounts, but, you know, very quickly, you know that they are not going to pay that back. Um, mm -hmm. So that was interesting because- well, I just, just, just so I can tie this, right? Yeah. So if, if these are stolen BVNs, okay. then when we did our KYC, wouldn't we have basically uh, required some kind of governmental form of identification, some kind of picture that basically matches the BVN number. And so how would they have, I guess, was that all fictionalized too? Or how did they do that? So the only reason they were able to do that was because um, there are checks that we have and the checks are more, how would I put it? They're comprehensive to the extent that it is, there's some degree of confidence that after we have done all these checks, the likelihood that this person owns this account is very high. And that incident was very helpful to us because there is, um, and this is interesting because there is something that we implemented from that incident that Paystack actually uses right now and is an API offering to other, um, to both yeah. us and other, we kind of really thought of that. And I think that's one unique thing about the model. It's kind of like with every incident, you can iterate to kind of, you know, codify it back into the model to make sure that it doesn't happen again. And It's like this arms race with the fraudsters. So I think that that was like 2018. Yes. And we weren't very strong. You know, we weren't, to your point, Promo, we weren't checking photos. Uh, there was a lot of things we weren't doing. We weren't doing similarity detection on phones, which really turned out to be the key. Um, so this kind of fraud is pretty hard to do, but it happened at scale, both in Kenya and Nigeria, uh, all around the same time. So I feel like the fraudsters were sharing information, but essentially what they were doing was with a small set of phones, they were purchasing thousands of SIM cards. The SIM cards are like 20 cents each. So they're able to get a lot of them. And then they have some list of real identity numbers and real names. And then they would wipe the phones, the serial number of each phone, they would rewrite the serial number. Back then we were only checking the serial number of the phones. So it looked to our database like a new phone because it had a new serial number and it had a new phone number and it had a BVN with a name that matched. Yeah. Um, the thing that really broke through and Maria was a big part of making this happen is um, we started checking the other contents of the phone, not just the serial number, and then comparing that with other phones in the database. And if they looked similar enough, we would just reject it because it's really hard to make a phone look completely unique. Um, it's like, you know, plagiarism, writing a term paper. You can change a lot of the sentences, you can change some of the words, but if the structure is the same, um, you know, similarity detection will catch it. So yeah, once, that's once interesting. Do you did you all name that? So, so uh, uh, back in the early two thousands, um, PayPal had a really similar situation. Matt knows this, but Maria, I was over at PayPal yeah. in the early days, and there was a, a Russian fraud ring um, that would basically, um, you know, buy um, uh, CD-ROMs, maybe, I don't know if it's the dark web or mm. what, but they would basically get a bunch of credit card information um, and people and send themselves money and they would exit it, uh, launder it through the system. And so we had to build the, the kind of the, the key fraudster there, his name was Igor or something. And we built- Oh, a it's visual, Igor. 
yeah, we, we built this kind of like visual uh, visualization of all the transactions in our system and then staffed up a bunch of people who every day would just look at money moving through the system and see unusual patterns. Mm -hmm. And that this Igor system was the kernel that eventually became Palantir. Palantir, yeah. It yeah, sounds like it, um, no. sounds like a bad TV show where the character has a wall with like string and pictures. Yeah, totally. It's totally. like Homeland. She Homeland. It's she's totally Claire like Danes is yeah. yeah. But it just started with like three people, you know, staring at a screen, staring at like Igor version one point <laughs> like trying to figure out like if you could. Because otherwise, like literally you could send, you could get someone's credit card number. Like, you know, you're a waiter at a restaurant. You could send yourself money using mm -hmm. a credit card um, and exit the money and no one, you know, like, and it would be gone. Um, and and what was interesting is um, at the time at PayPal, one of the people working there was an undercover FBI agent. We later Weird. Interesting. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, and so I wonder wow. if Grant, you know, kind you of heard doing, it here folks. you know, of, of those 30, 30 oh, people Maria. that you hired, Maria, like no, maybe Maria. someone's kind of undercover, you know? I mean, it's a way of understanding financial fraud is to work right. in one of these organizations right. doing pioneering work, um, uh, you know, and, and and kind of figuring out like, how does it, you know, how does it work from the inside out? And what is, what is this company like Branch or, you know, back in the day, what does PayPal do to kind of combat, um, you know, terrorist finance well, I, et cetera et cetera Grandma, I'm I find it, I, how did you find out like that sounds like such a cool story it how was so interesting <laughs> we found i mean this is this is a really great you know not confirmed but mm -hmm. um the part you know no one as paypal was growing no one's gonna leave mm -hmm. like mysteriously and this woman came in worked on her fraud team was kind of looking at the igor stuff really capable um, just, in, just an incredible person, and then just mysteriously like mm -hmm. announced that she's leaving, and then I think there, and she, you know, very closed, um, like you know, it was a pretty social crew back mm -hmm. then. Like I'm sure Maria, like you knew everyone in the office. You mm -hmm. all went out afterwards. Um, she kind of kept her distance, and then um, through someone, we learned that she was actually employed by the FBI. Ooh. So was she and, like and, the, and, did know, the management? Why would you come in, rotate through for like eight months, and then kind of rotate out? Like, um, you know, it was an unusual uh, story. So, anyways, but you know, I'm glad we passed that test. I guess. Do you think the Do you think the C the CEO and the board knew, like, they were in on it, or no, like no, she, I she think, just I got think it was an she got hired through. Like, she got hired through the yeah, normal. She, she got hired. Yeah. You know, she probably had incredible credentials mm. around you know, um, financial services, fraud, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it was the best candidate in the pile. There's probably other candidates who applied, um, but what a great way. Um, you know, you hear competitors kind of um, having Doing roles in, in, in other com companies, but uh, that was the first time I realized that, you know, why, why wouldn't a government do that? Um, so well, I, not, not, I not a bad idea. I find it surprising that Maria just all of a sudden left and got a scholarship at <laughs> <Yeah>. Oxford. <laughs> and yeah, I don't know. Are you? It's like uh, start this thing over. Maria, that I, I find really cool. I, you're a computer science major, right? Yes, I am. I did that for. So, time. so what? Like, what? What motivated that for you? So, my childhood was a lot of me, like, and and I was born 
in the 90s, right? So um, I was born in the period where in Nigeria, at the very least, the desktop started, you know, like showing up. Um, MS, you know, 95 started showing up and my dad was an accountant. So there was always a computer at home. I was very drawn to it. I was, and my dad could see that. Um, I would open it. We had dial-ups at home. I would try to configure it. Um, I was the computer girl in the house. Um, if there was anything wrong with it, my dad would say, go, you know, go check it out. I had also even learned to touch type on the computer at that time. Like when I was like nine, I was touch typing at like 45 words per minute. Like I was just drawn to the computer. And, you know, in, in Nigeria, my dad was like, clearly, you know, as an undergrad, computer science seems the logical choice. Like you like computers, you know, that, you know, linear, you know, line. And I, and I did um, computer science and it was exciting. It was um, enough of a challenge to keep me like really motivated and switched on. And it was interesting because it actually is the foundation of how I think today. Although I don't code as much, um, I actually think in a very structured way. Um, and sometimes it gives me, you know, connections and patterns and parallels that are just, just come naturally, you know, to me. Um, but the interesting thing was after I graduated, I did think that I would try to go into software engineering because my friends too were doing that. But I, I, I quickly realized how much I actually didn't enjoy it. And I know this is not the politically correct thing to say, <laughs> <laughs> but- I thought you loved computers. I did. And, it's, and now that has kind of like, now one philosophy in my life mm. is, if you think you like a thing, try it before you like commit to it. So that's like my philosophy now, because <laughs> sometimes you know, in our heads, we think we would love something because it's just logical. And it's not that I don't love computers. I think when I kind of dug into it, the thing with um, um, software engineering was it was kind of like very, it was very deep, but not very wide. I thrive in solving multiple deep problems. I'm a chartered accountant. I self-studied to do that. I liked that depth, but I also don't want to just be a chartered accountant. I also want to do this. So that restlessness, I think um, software engineering didn't account for it. <laughs> thank you so much, guys, for inviting yeah. me. I really had fun. And thank you for thinking of me.